Our text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10. You'll find this passage on page 986 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned the God from idols to, to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Thank you, everybody. You may be seated. I haven't mentioned this in a while. Um, I used to do it every week, but um, someone this morning asked me if they could purchase one of the Bibles in the chairs, and... Um, those Bibles are there for you to use, and if you do not have a Bible, they're there for you to take. So um, don't like take them all and put them on eBay, John, okay? Um, but if you need a Bible, uh, if you need an ESV, if you need something like that, if you want uh, a Bible, that is there for you. So um, please feel free to take one. Uh, we are starting a new series today in 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in this for the next probably... Uh, six to eight weeks, um, and then we'll be moving to a short series just before Advent, and Advent will be starting Genesis. And so as we start this new series, allow me to open it with prayer. Father, this morning, all of us brings an obstacle to your word, and it is ourselves. I bring it with me to the pulpit. Uh, everyone here brings it with them to where they're seated to listen, and I pray, God, that you would allow us, uh, by the power of your Spirit, to decrease so that you might increase. Allow your word to speak to us in our hearts. Tell us what you need us to hear, and Father, please give us the power to do as you ask. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, so as we start this new series, I really want to start with a big picture, and then we'll narrow down to what the context of 1 Thessalonians is. So let's start with the whole Bible. Um, the Bible is about a person. The Bible is about one person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, the Bible tells us uh, in story form how we can be saved from our sin against an infinite creator. That's the story of the Bible. And of course, the answer to how can we be saved from our sin against an infinite creator is Jesus Christ. That's, he's the main character. And so uh, we're told uh, in the Bible that the creator himself came in human form to do what? To save us from himself for himself. That's the main story of the Bible. That's the salvation story of the Bible. And so the Bible is this slow burn telling of that story. It doesn't go quickly. And the format in which we get the Bible, it tells us something about what God desires about us learning that story. Uh, uh, we did not get a spreadsheet, unfortunately, for some of you nerds out there. We didn't get a spreadsheet, okay? We didn't get a text. This is not a textbook. 
It's the story of a person, and the format with which we've been given it means we are to slowly and surely get to know the person of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible's for. And so the Bible then is broken into the Old and New Testament, and and keeping in mind that there's one character, the Old Testament happens before Jesus came, but it's still all about him. It's a preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, we we get the problem. The problem is laid out before us. We'll get to that in Advent when we, we listen to Genesis the fallout of the problem of our sin, and we get to see the beginning of the saving of God's people. We then come to the New Testament. It starts with the Gospels. The Gospels, there's four of them. It's the story of the arrival of Jesus, his work, his words. In short order, he was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He died an unjust death. He defeated that death through his resurrection. He ascended to heaven. He promised to come back. That's the main points of our salvation. That's the story of how we are saved. Most of the rest of the New Testament is, uh, consists of epistles, epistles written by apostles, okay? Um, might be confusing. Uh, and these epistles are letters written from those whom Jesus had appointed to be the messengers of the truth of the gospel. And what are they doing? They're explaining the story of Jesus to future followers. They're, they're telling us what the story of Jesus means. First Thessalonians is an epistle. It's explaining the story of Jesus to us. This letter was written by a guy named Paul. Paul was a Uh, an early Christian convert. In fact, he was a murderous persecutor of God's church, the church of Jesus early on. His conversion became the path of our salvation. We wouldn't be here in this place in Colombia if it weren't for Paul's conversion. God called Paul and he sent him out to the Gentiles. That's us. And so Paul was a church planter He went from city to city. He often went with a partner, and he would establish the church. We can read about his time in Thessalonica in Acts 17. Uh, In short, he and Timothy came to Thessalonica. They're doing their thing. They start in the synagogue. They're preaching. They're teaching. They're gathering converts. Well, there was a group of people, Gentile and Jew together, that didn't like this, so they rioted. They kidnapped his host, and basically, Paul and Timothy had to flee. They had to flee earlier than they wanted to. And so their time in Thessalonica was cut short, and even though it was a shorter time than they would have wanted, a deep, loving relationship had developed. And we're going to read about where that, the center of that relationship was the, the, those Thessalonians that, that came to know Jesus gave their lives fully to following Christ. And so the, this letter is a follow-up to that, although the church as a whole had accepted Paul's teachings And we'll read about their reputation today, their reputation for following Christ. Although they exhibited solid Christian living, they had some problems with eschatology, the return of Jesus. That's the thing that Paul and Timothy hadn't quite got to when they had to leave. And so they're they're unsure about the return of Jesus, and this is causing issues for them. So the letter of 1 Thessalonians is a correction. It's a helpful correction to the Thessalonians. But the basic message of this letter that Paul is writing to them, and he's also writing to us, is this. Live now in the hope of later. 
Live now, right now, in your day-to-day life in the hope of later. And so we're going to begin this series at the best place, the beginning. We're in 1 Thessalonians 1. You can see Paul recalling to the Thessalonians how he had brought them the gospel. It's in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the Thessalonians had received the message of the gospel through Paul. And then Paul goes into uh, a praise of them. They received it with their whole lives. We can see this in verse 6. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This word imitators, it means that they were doing what they had been taught. They were doing what they had been shown to do, what it meant to be a Christian, what they were told what it meant to be a Christian, they were living it. And so get get in your mind this, Uh, the Thessalonians were not theological know-it-alls. In fact, they didn't even have all the information Paul and Timothy had to, to leave early. They were just Christians living the Christian life in the simplest way it can be defined, following Jesus. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. That's what he's praising them for. In fact, you can see this. It says this phrase, you receive the word in much affliction. So even though in their town, we'll get to why this is in a moment, it was the least popular thing to do, to take on this new God, to follow this new God only, even when it didn't benefit them socially, financially, relationally. In their worldly lives, they heard, they believed, and they obeyed. That's who the Thessalonians were. Now, as I was reading about the Thessalonians and studying what all this meant, I couldn't help but think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his book, Cost of Discipleship. I mention it often. Uh, In his book, Bonhoeffer is calling us to live this thing called costly grace. And, And as we read about and understand what the Thessalonians are doing, I can't help but say they're exhibiting costly grace. Bonhoeffer defines it this way. Grace is costly because it calls us to follow. There's a cost in our day-to-day lives. The Thessalonians had accepted that cost and followed anyway. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. So even though the gospel had cost them in an earthly sense, they, they received it with grace and joy. Why? Because they were called to follow their true Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as a way of application, as we look at the Thessalonians, we can see that as Bonhoeffer puts it, following Christ is not an achievement of merit of a select few, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. The Thessalonians believed all of them, not just their pastor, not just their elders, not just a select few, all of them were called to follow Christ. This is something that you and I ought to take note of and we ought to be also imitators of. The Thessalonians laid an example that we should strive to imitate. Look at verses 7 and 8. Paul, again, praising the Thessalonians. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in those places, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So what do we have here? 
The Thessalonians are living out the Christian life. They're evangelizing other places. It says the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. They sent people out because of the good news that they had received. They wanted others to have it. Their faith was on display as they did so. And so Paul, if you go back to verse 2, he's thanking God for this. Not them. He's not praising them directly. He's thanking God. It says, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God, the Father, your work of faith, the labor of love and steadfastness in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is not thankful that they are such good people. Paul is thankful that through their faith, the gospel is spreading. That's what he's thankful for. And so we ought to look at the Thessalonians and find something intriguing to imitate here. Now, I want to pause. I want to wave a red flag, all right, on this idea of imitating. I grew up uh, as a Baptist, and um, I remember very clearly in children's church, in the basement of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Ellsworth, Maine. They used flanograph. I still remember it. It was in the corner by the kitchen where we would cook men's breakfast, things like that. If you don't know Flanagraph, you have not lived, okay? And I specifically remember the story of Samson, all right? And as a young, impressionable boy, they put up Samson, who looked kind of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And he had the donkey jawbone, and he, would, he was murdering Philistines, and there's something about that in my heart that was like, this is awesome, right? <laughs> this is awesome. And what did they do? They set Samson up as someone to, to hold up as a hero, As I've grown up and learned about Samson, he's not a hero. He's not. His life is rife with selfishness and sin and perversion. And so, why is Samson in the Bible? Why is Samson in Hebrews lifted up amongst the hall of faith, they call it, right? Why is he listed as a faithful one? Because of his repentance. In the end of his life, he repented. We look at heroes like David. He's not a hero for his behavior. He's only a hero for his repentance. Paul, we just read it as we inducted, what is the word, installed John. His life was a life of increasing repentance. And so as we go through the Bible, we need to be careful not to lift people up and say, see that, do this, because that's a very rare circumstance. In fact, it's only about one person, Jesus Christ, the main character. Instead, what are we supposed to see and imitate? Repentance. And it's the same for the Thessalonian church. They are famously repentant. We're not called to imitate the Thessalonians because they tried harder or did better or were best in class at fill-in-the-blank. We're to imitate them in seeing their need and leaning into Jesus. And that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time in this sermon. Paul lists out how they are famously repentant. He lists out what they are known for, and we start that in verse 9. So he said, You have been imitators of us and of the Lord, you received the word, you went out, you evangelized, your faith has become famous. What is the report of others about the Thessalonians? Verse 9, they themselves report concerning us the, the kind of reception we had among you for how you turned from God uh, to God from idols. Don't get that messed up, Ransom, okay? 
famously repentant. They turned from idols. Here's where it's important to know a little bit about what's going on in Thessalonica. First of all, the word turn here is the word for repentance. Thessalonica was a city centered on, founded on emperor worship. So if you know anything about Greek and Roman religion, they generally, each city had its own kind of emphasized God. The God of Thessalonica was the emperor, Caesar. And so you were called as a business person, a a social person, to simply and only worship the emperor. And if you did so rightly, things went well for you. And so what does Christianity demand? It's an oddity in the first century. It demands that you give up all other idols, not just add another one to the shelf, and worship Jesus Christ alone. This would have caused social, financial, legal issues for them. This is why Paul and Timothy were run out on a rail. I mean, not literally, there's no railroads. But they are turning from idols to serve God, also in verse 9, to serve the living and true God. The Thessalonians famously have turned away from being dependent upon idols to give them what they need. That's what idolatry is. You go to the the temple and it's very self-serving. You do something to what? Get something. That's why you serve idols. And so despite the difficulty that it caused them, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they turned from idols and they serve only the living and true God, Jesus Christ. So what's the kind of nugget here? What are we straining from the text? The result of the Thessalonians' whole life repentance was the expansion of the gospel. That's what's happening here. It's not that they were better or working harder. They repented, they did what Christ asked them, and the gospel was spreading. And so we can hear this for ourselves, that it's not our effort that brings fruit. It's our repentance and our need. Our dependence on Christ allows us to witness his work. And so Paul is praising the Thessalonians for this, for the fruit of their life. And the fruit of their life is produced of our life is produced the same way the fruit of the Thessalonian life. It's found in their waiting for Christ. He goes on in verse 10 to detail exactly what he means. How do we serve the true God? How are we repentant? What are they known for? They are known for waiting for his son from heaven, waiting for Jesus Christ. They're known for living their life as if something else is going to occur and they actually believe it's going to happen. They're known from turning from idols, waiting with expectation. They wait with expectation, how? Because they know who Jesus is. He's his son from heaven. They know what what Jesus did. He was raised from the dead. And they know what that means. It means that they will be delivered from the wrath to come. And so repentance toward Christ, church, this is the foundation of the Christian life. And so That's what we're learning from them. But again, the context of the whole letter, this letter is a correction. It's a course correction. So yes, it's all very positive here. But in the context of the whole letter, we've got to start asking some questions. What happened? They had some small misunderstandings. 
about the return of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul and Timothy had to leave. They didn't quite get to the details of what it means for Jesus to come back and when that would happen and, and what that would look like. And so in the space that had been left by that lack of education there, other ideas, old thinking had, had seeped in. What is the old thinking? They believed that, well, good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. That's what idolatry teaches them, teaches us. And so this idea that, well, wait, Jesus hasn't returned yet. Well, wait, persecution's continuing. Well, what's going on? This idea of good happening to good and bad happening to bad had seeped back in. It had eroded their hope. It eroded their hope. And so different people from different angles start living different ways. They're not called to live in the gospel. Some looked for hope in legalism. Well, if good things happen to good people, we better get better. We'll see this later in the text. Others thought, well, you know, if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. We can just live how we want. They looked for hope in, in licentiousness, living what felt right. And so Paul is writing to recharge the hope of the Thessalonians. And what does he start with doing? He reminds them of the fruit of their repentant life. That's where he starts. And so this is where we can connect with this passage just today. First of all, what's harmful to our hope? What's harmful to my hope? Misunderstandings about Jesus is harmful to our hope. If we do not understand who Jesus is, who he has been represented in here, it's harmful to our hope in this life. Also, old worldly ideas seeping into our life is harmful to our hope. It derails us. <clears throat> so where do we find hope? Church, where do you and I, if we need hope, we all do, where do we find it? It's the same place we find fruit. Hope is only found, only found in following Jesus Christ with our whole lives. That's the only place. So if you need hope, if you're wondering where the fruit of your life is, the answer is give more of your life to Christ. Let the word seep in and speak into your soul. And so where is our hope now? Even as affliction strikes, as it did for the Thessalonians, it's not in our righteous condition. It's not in our happiness. Our hope's not found in any of those places. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone who lives and reigns forever. Amen? Amen? What are we to do with that truth? What are we to do with it? Now, we have the whole series to answer that question, but today I think the good starting point is something called self-awareness. Self-awareness. We have this example of the Thessalonians. Their repentance had created fruit. Paul's pointing to their repentance as the source of their joy as well. And so we have some questions. First and foremost, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God come to save sinners? Do you believe that? Every conversation about hope in this life, needs to start with who do you think Jesus is? That's the beginning. Do you believe he came to save sinners? The next question is, are you a sinner? Because <laughs> if you're not, he didn't come for you. If you're a sinner, Jesus came to save you, and he did it 100% already, not 50, not 85. He did it himself for you. What are we called to do? We're called to receive and follow. There's a cost to that, but there's also much, much eternal grace that comes along with that. 
The next question would be, is Jesus coming again? Okay? It's not something maybe we think about every day. We think about maybe the fact that he came and what he did, but is he coming again? And if he's coming again, how should that inform how we live every day of our lives? If it's really going to happen and we don't know when, that means something. And so if he's coming again, Paul has just told us where hope and fruit are found. First, it comes in turning from idols and toward God. Now, we don't go and worship the emperor. Maybe we do. I don't know. I mean, not the emperor, but maybe we worship politics or something like that. But it's not as easy to pinpoint these days. We're not all showing up to temple together to make our offerings or leave our sacrifices. But I think we all, in some way, struggle with idolatry to self, to self. Now, that's not only in sinful things. Idolatry to self on the sinful side of the spectrum is we demand to define how our lives should go. That's what it looks like. That's idolatry. We base our principles on opinion rather than scripture. And we base our choices on personal happiness rather than honoring Christ. That's what personal sinful idolatry looks like. Now, there's also the Christian context. And our Christian context is also rife with idolatry. And it's going to sound familiar. We base our principles on opinion rather than scripture. And we base our choices probably on personal righteousness because we think it earns something with God rather than honoring Christ. There's no hope in any of those things. There's no hope in any of those things. There's only hope in Jesus Christ. And so we're called, as the Thessalonians did, We're called to wait in hope for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus told us he's coming back. He's coming back. It's not something we maybe talk about very much. He's coming back. If we believe it, it means something real. It means something real. It's not just something where we say, oh, he's back, cool, all right. You know, it defines the trajectory of our lives. If that's where we're heading, we should live intentionally in the reality of that. And church, I want to say this. This is the last thing I'll say before the Lord's Supper. The only thing that can create such a hope that is lived out in our every day, that's lived out in our every moment, it's lived out in every part of our life, is the fact that not only of who Jesus is and what he did, but the result of that, he delivers us from the wrath to come. We are free from condemnation of our sins. We are free only in Jesus Christ. By his death, his resurrection, and his return. So this morning, as we point ourselves towards self-evaluation, what better thing to do next than have the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper, I love the Lord's Supper, and I love that we do it every week because it is a complex sacrament. There's so many different facets It's beautiful, but the one I want us to really think about today is that the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is often and always should be an opportunity for us to turn the microscope on our own lives, to be honest about our sin, to confess it fully to Jesus Christ and take responsibility for it. There's only one place that we can do that without condemnation at the foot of the cross where that thing has already been paid for. So we have the broken body, the shed blood of Jesus, 
This is the only place that we can come and confess. And Jesus says, come and confess. And so this morning, may we put on ourselves that microscope, not one of condemnation, but a microscope that leads us to hope. Let us be tangibly reminded of Jesus. And may we be drawn into that hope. And so this morning, and self-awareness, who should come? Those who know who Jesus is, the, the Son of God, come to save sinners. We know what he did. He lived that perfect life. He died that unjust death. He did that for us, for himself. If we believe that we are sinners, we believe that only Jesus, no other idol can deliver that for us, Deliver us from the wrath to come. We've made that profession. We've been baptized. You're invited as a friend and a child to come and eat. There's no sin that you can see in the microscope that says, no, if we are repentant and we say, yes, that's a sin. Jesus, I need you. Come and eat. This morning, if you have not believed these things or under the microscope, you see a sin and you're kind of like, well, I like it too much. I'm not going to really let go of that. The Bible makes it clear. It's not right or wise or good to come and eat. You're rejecting grace. And so it makes sense not to come and eat of grace. Let's take a moment and pray to ourselves quietly, spend some time in that self-awareness, and then I'll gather us back together before the distribution in a prayer of blessing. Father in heaven, Our sin is more egregious than we even know. We spent some time now, I pray, examining our hearts. There are sins hidden in there that we have yet to uncover. That may be a dark truth if it weren't for the fact that we are loved greater than we could ever imagine. And so in the life and the death and the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ, we are given an opportunity to be honest to repent, to follow a God who loved us, created us for himself. We walked away from that in our sin, and yet he still does what is necessary to bring us home, to bring us back. And so as we take this bread, and we eat it, and we take this juice or wine, and we drink it, may we be reminded of the covering of Jesus Christ's blood. The covering of our sins. The payment for our rebellion. And the infinite love with which those things were done. May it give us hope. May it give us hope. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.